Welcome in to Two for One Drafts. Austin Gale here with Mike Renner, continuing the remote edition of Two for One Drafts. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the week, but we miss each other. The podcasts are just better in person. They just are. I know. We do the radio show actually in person, which I don't know why we do the radio show in person on Sirius if we don't do the podcast also in person. Like we're obviously not too worried about coronavirus, but True. still worried enough not to get together three times a week. We still sit sit six feet away from each other when we do do the radio true. show. This is you know, I don't, I don't even get near you, which is which is interesting. Yeah. But uh, we got a jam packed show today. Uh, we're going to talk about sleepers. Uh, Mike Renner recently wrote a top ten sleepers article for pff.com. We're going to walk through those ten guys. We're also going to do. We got some new segments for you. We're getting back into the segment game here. We're going to start with chug, sit, spit. Each of us Let's got a go. take, and um, each of us are going to give it a chug. We hundred percent agree. Sip probably agree but i don't know and then spit it's just absolute garbage beer garbage alcohol we're not taking that and then the other segment will be top shelf versus the well looking at a day one round one type of prospect versus taking a similar prospect on day two day three that one should be a ton of fun but before we get into all that the 2020 nfl draft guide for edge and elite subscribers is available you can get it for as low as seven dollars and fifty cents if you subscribe to edge monthly with promo code nfl 2020 however we are going to send a free draft guide, 1,100 pages of information um, to five podcast listeners who Let's leave go. their email, who leave their email and a review for the podcast. If you go to iTunes, leave a review, leave, you know, tell us how much you like Mike and you don't like that, you know, you don't like me that much. Leave your email. You're going to get a draft guide sent to you. Five guys will get, or five people will get um, a draft guide sent to them. So a lot of fun stuff there. Make sure to do that. Do that right now and then get back to the podcast if you want. Uh, really appreciate you guys' support. Really appreciate all of our fans of two for one drafts. Let's dive into these sleepers, Mike. Yes. We're just trying to get, we're trying to get more people, trying to get more listeners, trying to spread more draft knowledge to yeah. the masses. You have the to goal. Do yeah. That's the goal. All right. Diving into these sleepers here, published two days ago. We had to, top of the list is my, one of my favorite, you know, interior offensive linemen in this class. It's not my favorite Jonah Jackson of Ohio state. This guy went to the senior bowl and blew it up. Really impressive player. Um, we talked to Jim Nagy on Sirius radio and he said he was even more surprised by Jonah Jackson when he showed up to the senior bowl. Yes. He recruited him to the senior bowl, but he did not expect him to play as well as he did in mobile really showed out in practices. He's got a weird build. We've talked about his body type a little bit before, but Jonah Jackson top of the list when it comes to sleepers. And he has a three page player profile in the draft guide. You get, if you do link a, um, your email in a uh, review. Yeah. The thing about guard and interior offensive line is it's so like physical, physical tools are so not, correlated to like success you know like there's of all the positions i feel like on the football field it is so much the most skill-based now you still need you still need strength that still helps you still need some traits you still need some athleticism that obviously helps but like zach martin is no physical freak you know marshall yanda was not a physical freak it is a skill position it is a technical position and to me jonah jackson has is the most technically sound guard in this class in terms of the way he uses his hand in pass protection. I mean, it's shown up over the past two years, 17 pressures total over the past two years, only one sack. And I think that was on a stunt that he missed, you know, uh, on a pickup on, he didn't actually get beaten himself for that sack. Like he doesn't lose a lot one-on-one. And when he does lose, he's still hanging on to guys. Like he's not, he's not getting cleanly beaten. He's not completely out of position at times. He's not falling flat on his face. There's a lot to like about his balance, his pass sets that, man, I like, I haven't heard any buzz about this guy on day two of the draft. If he falls to day three, I think you're getting a starting guard 
you know, from the rip, my, the comp for him, the draft guide was uh, Josh Sitton, former Green Bay Packers guard, where you're not going to get a great run blocker, but his pass protection more than makes up for it. And I think pass protection is so important. I mean, you need good pa- pass protection on the interior. Oh, Riggins joining the podcast here on exactly. two for one drafts. But with Jonah Jackson, I think, you know, you speak to his technique and all of those things. I think with, with Jonah Jackson, if he falls to day three, like you said, that's a seal. But even I, 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 I think he does go day two. I'm of the opinion that he, he created enough buzz at the senior bowl that he's going to go on day two. I, I I can't imagine he slips. I, I think there's a chance he goes into the second round. He's a top 32 player on PFF's board, correct? Yes. Or no, he's, he's like in the, he's like 40 right now. I don't know. I, I shouldn't know the board better than I do at the moment, but it, like he's right outside the first round for us. Probably a second rounder is where I'd start to feel comfortable with him, you know, early day two. Uh, to but me, a lot of that remind- too is, is positional value. Like you're not going to yes. take oh, yeah. line and high in the draft because of the replaceability of the position. But I think with him top of day two, like you get into the first 10, 15 picks of the second round. Like I feel more than comfortable taking it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Like and, <laughs> if, you have, if you're a team like the dolphins who obviously need guard, you're a team that's just bereft of talent. He to me is like your best immediate option uh, in this guard class. All right, moving to the second player on PFF's top 10 sleepers article. It's Geno Stone, the Iowa safety who has just instincts falling out of him. I mean, this guy is one of the more instinctual players in this class. You see it on film instantly. You see it a lot with these Iowa defensive backs. These guys that play a ton of zone coverage are coached very well. He's seeing the play before it happens, and that leads to good ball production. And when you look at players like Geno Stone, I think we brought up on the serious show, Jalen Johnson, guys that have great instincts, great football IQ that can kind of see the play happening before it does, they're going to excel at the next level. They're going to have good ball production at the next level. And I think that's what's important with Geno Stone. He's not going to wow you athletically like some of the others in this class, but what Geno Stone brings to the table is production because he knows when, what's happening. He's got a ton of reps. He's got a ton of experience, and he knows the play in front of him. Yeah, this guy was playing. He saw time as a true freshman for Kirk Ferentz back in 2017, which, you know, Iowa fans know start seeing time at all, seeing the field as a true freshman is rare for Iowa. That's why like, just when Tristan Wirfs made starts at tackle, that was a big deal. First guy to ever start a tackle. He just doesn't like playing guys as true freshmen. He wants, you know, a lot of guys redshirt there. There's a lot of development that goes on in that Iowa program. So for him to see the field was rare. And then for him to start as a sophomore and earn an 89.8 coverage grade. I mean, he was, this is a special guy with a special sort of grading profile throughout his career. 84.5 coverage grade this past season. Like there's not a lot of, and, and there's not a lot of times he's wrong. Like he's instinctual player who is going to trust his instincts and jump on routes and jump on balls and that sort of thing. And he's not wrong a lot of the time, Like he he's not, there's not a lot of plays on tape. You see guys like that often who will just get torched on double moves guys like that, who will uh, bite and then be way out of position for something going over the top of them. You just don't see that on his tape. Really? He, he like, he's right. The vast majority of the time. And I, I will take that at a position like safety where you just so much of it is about being able to read what's in front of you. Yes, physical tools matter. Yes, having them is good. But so much of it is such a sort of vision-based position, sort of what's going on between your earlobes sort of position that I'll take the guy who's elite in that regard. And that's Gino Stone. Yeah, in, in addition to the article we have on the sleepers, where Gino Stone is listed second, Dr. Eric Eager, a data scientist here at PFF, wrote an article looking at his statistical projections using our College to Pro projections that we're currently working on, and 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 
giving to NFL and NCAA teams. And with Geno Stillen, the comps for him from a production standpoint, Justin Simmons and Earl Thomas, according to Eric Eager. I mean, this guy has a very good grading profile. You spoke to it. And I think a lot of that is because of his instincts at the safety position. I think athleticism matters a ton. You need to be a good athlete to move around on the back end. But I think having those instincts, knowing where the football is going is also a big part of that because to grade well in PFF systems, specifically at the safety position, you have to be around the football. And Geno Stone mm-hmm. is always around the football. And I think that translates to the next level. Moving off of Geno Stone, let's get and to... I was going to say, you brought up Justin Simmons. He only ran a 4.61. Now, he had better jumps than uh, than Geno Stone, but he ran about the exact same 40 at a lighter weight than Geno Stone came in at. So I, I do think that... And he's now obviously an elite safety. got the tag on him. So I, I do think that that speed at that position is not the end-all be-all. Let's jump to Travis Gibson, friend of the pod. Had him on the 2 for one Drafts podcast a few episodes ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that interview. He's an interesting player, a guy that played a little bit out of position at Tulsa. We talked about that a little bit, played inside more than maybe you probably project him to play in the NFL. But at edge defender, I think Travis Gibson on, you know, back end of day two, top of day three, you're talking about a player that could have a high impact at the next level. You see him as a sleeper. So that's the thing about the edge position is it's so even more so in the data guys will back this up in terms of the combine testing and pure athleticism and what you bring to the table physically, it moves the needle on their projections more so than any other position. Like athleticism matters on the edge. So the guys that have it, usually the NFL can tell, like it's difficult. If you look at just purely from a production standpoint, in the PFF grading system, there's not a lot of guys in the top 15 to 20 pass rushing grades who aren't first round picks like they get identified and you know, the guys who have the tools to win as pastors at the next level. Gibson has those tools. Like he is, he's a guy who on the set on day two, day three, whenever you're going to get him, he has those physical tools. Now he doesn't have a lot of pass rushing moves. He doesn't have a lot of, you know, a lot in his toolbox uh, in terms of on field play right now. But even with not a lot of pass rushing moves, he still graded out really well at Tulsa and in a role that wasn't necessarily conducive to rushing the pass. We've talked about this before about he played inside a lot, but still earns an 89.7 pass rushing grade this past year. So he's a guy who I think is kind of just scratching the surface. And if you need pass rushing help, like I said, usually you're not going to find it in the second, third, fourth round to even have a guy who comes close to providing that is a huge win. If you're drafting them in the fourth round, that's a huge, like just just don't find a lot of guys like that. Usually you're finding the Jonathan Greeners of the world who are awful athletes, like productive in college, but you're just kind of like hoping uh, to catch lightning in a bottle. I think Gibson offers a little more than someone like that. It's honestly unfortunate over the past draft classes talking to some of these edge defenders that do have some traits that could project to the NFL that don't have any moves. Guys that are like, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any passers moves. I remember, talking, I remember talking yeah. to Ben Banigou. He's like, dude, yeah, yeah. I, I literally YouTubed Von Miller highlights to try and figure out my next move. You talked to Travis Gibson. I talked to Alex Highsmith recently, and he said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm watching Yannick Ngakwe and Demarcus Lawrence to try and learn uh, the cross shop. And he brought they brought in a former Minnesota coach, Marcus West, to teach him those things. And like he went from three sacks to 16 sacks in a year. And he said a lot of that was because he just was taught the right things. I, I think NFL coaching and good coaching matters a ton. Also, in addition to the coaching, I don't think this gets brought up enough. It's not having to go to school. It's having 100 percent of your time dedicated to improving as a player. And I think that's why not having a full tool belt 
at the college level is not necessarily a prerequisite to being one of the top edge defenders in the NFL yeah. because you can learn those moves with more time, with better coaching at the next level. I think that's what you could see with Travis Gibson. And that's why I say it's encouraging that they still grade out well. It's because the moves that they do have, they're executing well. Like the ones that they have been taught, they know how to do and, and perform those well. So that to me is why it's encouraging. When a guy obviously has bad coaching, hasn't, uh, you know, doesn't have any pass rushing moves, but is not getting the job done like whatsoever, then you're a little bit more concerned because you're like, you know, he's still probably like, they've still taught him like something, like a rip, like a push ball. Like, there's still like something that their D-line coach has to know. Why the hell is he a D-line coach otherwise? But uh, they still have to have something. And so if they're not getting the job done with, you know, X, X and X move, it's a little uh, more concerning. Yeah, I mean, another name that comes to mind is Javon Kinlaw of South Carolina, a guy that does not have a ton of moves, but still great at a high level because he wins yes. the moves he does do, and he's a freakish athlete with crazy size. <laughs> but, but that's also why you almost like so Rashawn Gary last year. He had, Michigan D-line is not known for poor coaching. You know, they have been very well coached. If a guy comes out of Ohio State and doesn't use his hands well, that's a red flag. Like those are you know, those are guy comes out of Alabama. Blue blood. Davis, those are blue blood well. programs. They're getting NFL coaching along the defensive line. There's no excuse when you're coming from a program like that and to not have developed uh, as a pass rusher. I would agree 100%. Let's jump to number four. Uh, offensive tackle Jack Driscoll had two years at Auburn after transferring from UMass. Very good grading profile. I know this is another guy that Dr. Eric Eager has highlighted as someone that ranks high or projects high in his statistical projections from college to pro. Driscoll not getting talked about a ton. I mean, this is a top-heavy offensive tackle class, and it kind of ends from a first-round player type of standpoint. So like Ezra Cleveland, maybe Austin Jackson of USC. But after that big group of players, six or seven offensive tackles, you land a Jack Driscoll round four round five. I mean, you're getting good pass protection from a day three pick. And I think that's valuable. That's the thing. It's he has all the tools, all these sort of skills you want in terms of pass protection. He doesn't have great size, doesn't have great length and his needs to get stronger still. But like he has the movement skills, his pass sets are pretty like he is much, much better in that regard than his teammate, Prince Teguanogo. Uh He kind of not to bring back up Jonathan Greener and really pile on him. But Jeez. he was the guy who just annihilated Greener in stock for me because Greener tried to get to the edge against Driscoll. Couldn't that entire game. It just He got stonewalled repeatedly against Driscoll in their one-on-one matchups. And it's because Driscoll finally had the athleticism to mirror, you know, Greener. Like Greener won with a ton of inside moves uh, early on in the season, killed, you know, the Miami tackle who was a tight end, turn tackle, true freshman, whatever, had no business <laughs> trying to block him made a name for himself then, but when he went up against real talent, all of a sudden that inside move wasn't there. Like Drax Driscoll was sitting on that. And then once he tried to get to the edge, would just push him right past the pocket. So yeah, I think Driscoll, to me, I'm not putting this on him, but to me, he's kind of similar to uh, David Bakhtiari coming out of Colorado where he's just small. Like he's just undersized and has no power to his game, but I'd rather teach a guy or I'd rather bank on a guy getting stronger in the weight room, whatever it might take to do that. Uh, than banking on a guy to get more agile, you know, banking on a guy to use his hands better. Like we've seen guys get stronger over the course of their NFL careers. I don't think we've seen guys, you know, necessarily get far more agile. Yeah. All right. Let's jump to the fifth player on the sleepers list. It's KJ Hill of Ohio state was, was a deep sleeper before the senior bowl. I mean, he goes to the senior bowl, 
goes against press coverage and dominates, wins practically every rep he had there, was one of the more impressive receivers in Mobile that week. And I think when you look back, I, I looked at the top 12 receivers on PFF's board. No receiver has ran fewer snaps against press than K.J. Hill because he runs so much in the slot. They run a lot of four wide. We spoke about that on the serious show. But this guy doesn't have elite athleticism. Four six at the combine, not someone that you're going to target as this kind of burner or like super athletic type. But what he does do is get open. And when you can get open, that has value in the NFL. Yeah, so I was actually really high on him heading into this season, and I expected a big year from him. And then, you know, kind of it never materialized, actually. He, his production even went downwards. But then in retrospect, I mean, I thought, you know, losing Terry McLaurin, losing Paris Campbell, like his numbers are going to go through the roof. He's all they have. Ohio State reloads. Like they had uh, Chris Olave is a monster. Uh, the other guy who's the true freshman, Garrett, uh, his name has escaped me, is also a monster like he didn't, his production numbers didn't go up because they didn't have any sort of fall off in talent in that wide receiving core. So they didn't have any in- incentive to feed him the ball more than they did a year ago. So realistically, like what I saw from junior tape is what I saw from senior tape when I went back and looked and it's a guy who can get open repeatedly on the underneath intermediate route tree. He just shakes guys, knows how to set up, you know, knows how to use leverage, knows how to set up guys and continuously can get off the line of scrimmage he proved at the senior bowl. Uh, so to me, like he might not, it, you can chase higher end prospects in this class on day one. And I get wanting a more complete sort of wide receiver than a KJ Hill. But if you're passing on this guy in the third round and for some other wide receiver, if you're passing on this guy for Donovan Peoples Jones, you're crazy. Like he is far, far better, far more polished a product coming out than any guy you're going to find in the third round in this draft class. Do you think KJ Hill is a better prospect than Paris Campbell? Because I'm of the opinion that he is. Because Paris Campbell, Paris Campbell went in the second round, but I think that was a reach for the Indianapolis Colts. Yes, he's good after the catch, but like very limited. Yeah, he wasn't even that good run. after a catch. I'll say. I didn't even really? think he was that good after the catch. Like he was fast. He was straight line after the catch, which works to some degree in the NFL. But like I don't think. Like he wasn't as good as Mecole Hardman. After I mean, that. you need that force miss tackle ability. Being good after the catch is more than being fast. You need to be exactly. elusive. You need to break tackles. And I don't know if you saw that with Paris Campbell. And just being that limited as a route runner, I think I saw 89% of his targets were within four yards of the line of scrimmage in his last year at Ohio State. Something along those lines. Like this guy was not pushing the ball. I mean, not pushing fields, you know, pushing routes downfield, was not having production down the football field. And like, I just feel like that's such then a by the Colts. It goes back to what we just talked about with the edge position. You have the best coaching in the country at Ohio State. Brian Hartline has been making, you know, magic there Dude, with that wide receiving core. Creating gods. <laughs> yeah. You have no excuse to be as raw as he was. And that's that itself was a red flag for him there coming out. That's a strong take. Cause I mean, you look at what he did with Terry McLaurin, making him one like, I mean, I always go back to that Terry McLaurin tape against Darius Slay when he's shadowing him. I mean, he turns, puts him in a blender. I mean, McLaurin is such an advanced route runner for a rookie this past year. And Paris Campbell's like I, the opposite. I, I'd be interested to know Brian Hartline's take on Paris Campbell and maybe why he didn't translate to being a better route runner. That's interesting. All right, let's move to number six on the sleepers list here. Darnell Mooney, the wide receiver from Tulane. I got to be honest, I haven't watched any of this guy. This is the first time I'm hearing of Darnell Mooney. It sounds like you're, he's a real sleeper. Then talk to me about Mooney. So he did get a combine invite. So he's not, he's on the radar, at least unlike some of the other guys who are on this list didn't get combine invites, but Mooney four three eight at the combine and some guys go to the combine and have speed and you look on tape and it'll take you a while to find reps where you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. That's a four, three, eight. No, like every single rep on this guy's tape, he's explosive. Like he looks like he runs a sub four forty. Now his ball skills and the way he attacks the ball, 
are admittedly rough. Like he had 23 drops on 177 attempts in his college career. Eight drops on 55 catchable this past That's season. absurd. <laughs> Eight drops on 56 the year before that. But the crazy thing is he went 11 of 19 in contested situations this past year. Like when a guy's around him, he's like attacking the ball kind of well, but the drops are just repeatedly there to where I don't, I don't know what to make of it. Like those are on the bad end where I'm not going to, where I, I would push this guy down the board into well into day three. But in terms of just what he brings to the table as an explosive wide receiver, I mean, nine broken tackles on 40 catch, 47 catches this year on 48 last year, he had nine as well. And this is downfield routes. He's not catching a lot of screens in that two lane offense. I just think he's a poor man's KJ Hamler to me and where you're going to draft him well later on in the draft, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round, you're going to get a similar skill set that KJ Hamler has given you in probably the second. I mean, Darnell Mooney, I was looking at his background a little bit. Two-star recruit coming out with four. Now he has four, three, eight speed. How do you get tagged as a two-star recruit with that kind of speed in your arsenal? Only one offer accepted it to Tulane. I'm dying. It's on my list. I'm going into this tape. I need to get into this tape. All right, moving forward here, it is time to dive into the next guy on this list. Uh, McTelvin Aguin, the Arkansas. We talked about him a little bit on previous podcasts, but I think McTelvin Aguin, um, give me give me your take on him. Yeah, so he dominated the Shrine game in the one-on-ones, went to the Senior Bowl, uh, got like a, was a late ad invite after what he did at the Shrine game, and I think he ended up third in terms of win rate in the one-on-ones there among defensive tackles. And he was the guy who I was saying like, he has a ton of different pass rushing moves already. And the fact that he has a ton is interesting. Now, and none of them were great and he didn't have like a go-to move, but he still had an 81.5 pass rushing grade this past season, which in the SEC at Arkansas, where you're not getting a lot of obvious, you know, second half pass rushing attempts because they were not winning a lot of games there. It's pretty good. Like if he was at a, probably a, a school where they were winning a lot more, he probably would have had a better grade, had more opportunities to get pressure. He has the physical profile, 33 and a half inch arms, 309 pounds, sub five second, 40 and 27 bench reps. There's just, I haven't heard like any buzz on this guy as a day two prospect. And I just think you're going to get a solid kind of all around defensive tackle. If you're drafting this guy in the fourth round and if you get a solid, solid all around defense tackle, we see teams paying $10 million a year for a guy like that. Now, uh, I, I just think this guy has a pretty complete skill set that, not a lot of other DTs in this class have. You got a lot of undersized guys after the top group. I think that might be a product of uh, helmet scouting. I mean, you talk about Rutgers not getting a ton of love. Uh, a big reason Arkansas, why John yeah. Jacks, Arkansas in the SEC is not getting the same love as others in the SEC. McTelvin Aguin. All right, moving to a quarterback sleeper. Not Jordan Love, Josh Love of San Jose State. I, I really like the write-up you have here. I mean, this guy... Very good under pressure, and I think that's what stands out right off the bat. But also, you have a, high, a play highlighted here of him just going deep against Arkansas, staring down the barrel, and getting hit but dropping a dime on the top. But what's funny about the clip is that the supporting cast also shows out. This guy, it's like in his breadbasket, I just like falls down yeah. <laughs> instead of scoring the touchdown. Uh, give me uh, more on Jordan Love or Josh Love. Josh sorry. Love. Yeah, so he didn't even get a combine invite, even though the guy lit up. Like I said, he went for over 400 yards against Arkansas. He can sling the rock down the field only six foot though, 200 pounds. That's obviously why he didn't get an invite. It doesn't to me size doesn't to me. He's like Nick Mullins coming out of Southern Miss in that nothing about him looks like what we used to think, you know, the quarterback position should look like, like he isn't a small guy, not a can for an arm, but it's definitely a good enough arm, but 
but just he plays the quarterback position exceptionally well. And the biggest thing about him that's the biggest thing that I love is and if you see, watch that play, it's the very first play against Arkansas. He just takes an absolute shot and drops a dime. He was so good under pressure last year, so calm in the pocket, converted pressure to sacks at the lowest rate of any quarterback in the country, only 9%, and had the ninth best grade as a passer under pressure, which is even probably more impressive that he's not just like dumping the ball panicky when he does face a guy to avoid sacks. He's actually making things happen with football and avoiding sacks. To me, that's a really good combination. Like I would take this guy in the fifth round every day of the week if I could, just because like Nick Mullins is worth way more than a fifth rounder at this point with what we saw from him in his handful of games for San Francisco last year. So yeah, I just think this guy obviously not getting combined invite people probably aren't, he's probably not going to go before the seventh if he does even get drafted. That's interesting. I mean, have, I mean, I, I just don't understand why you would be I mean, with the quarterback position. We talk about like positional value. I think trying That's to find Brian quarterbacks that you, got a combine <laughs> invite you know like you watch brian he's got big hands three games. exactly That's, but he fumbled the shit out of the ball that guy double digit fumbles every year with monster hands i don't know how i mean with the value of the quarterback position too you talk about like taking them higher in the draft and it's a big reason why he's above J- uh, chase young on our draft board because it just matters but like it also matters that backup quarterback trying to find quarterbacks on day three that like can actually deliver plus play if starting in a bind i think it's very valuable and i you know, from what you said, it sounds like Jordan Love is exactly that. Josh Love is that. All right, moving to number nine, John Reed of Penn State. The background for this kid is absurd. He's like, apparently as a recruit, he really impressed the Penn State coaches with his, like, addiction to film study. Like, he was saying he watched more film as a high schooler than, like, a lot of the Penn State, you know, veterans were on that team did. And he's also an applied data sciences major, like, did some crazy stuff with, like, um, artificial intelligence and stuff. Like, this guy's a very smart dude, great on film. He's not a ter- not, not a bad athlete, and I think he's had good production at Penn State as well. Yeah, so he's undersized, though. And that's kind of the kiss of death for what, for cornerbacks draft stock. 5'10", 187. But like you mentioned, like very athletic guy. Ran 4'49", had the best short shuttle of any player at the combine period. 3'97", short shuttle, 6'95", cone, 10'9", broad, and did 20, not, 20 reps on the bench. So like he's a good athlete or across the board. And he kind of played a lot of off-zone coverage at Penn State, a lot of shuffle outs there on his tape but he uh when he did play man coverage i was incredibly impressed by his ability to stick with wide receivers 97 snaps this past season man coverage only allowed six of 18 targets for 58 yards on those 97 snaps and picked off a pass and forced five more incompletions so there's just a lot to work with and he is on the older side and he is undersized and he's going to turn 24 as a rookie and is undersized but like there's just there's a lot to like about his game at this point and if you're getting again if you're getting it on fourth round fifth round offering a lot more than your average guy at that position also if he doesn't pan out in the nfl he's got a job at pff sounds like this guy's oh, a yeah. smart dude knows football knows knows data science i think that's exactly who we need to go after maybe we take him in the draft i don't know all right last guy on the sleepers list is probably one of the more exciting players to watch on tape not to use the term fun to watch fun to but watch. jj taylor jj taylor is definitely fun to watch five foot five 185-pound running back out of Arizona. Guy is very, very small. That's an understatement. Tariq Cohen comps are obvious, but with him, he, he just he runs with like confidence. Runs with like runs. Like, I think you've said this before, but runs like he's the biggest player on the football field, and you see that with his tape. Yeah, he actually has truck sticks on his tape, and <laughs> but so he's not as fast as Tariq Cohen, but he's far more willing to run 
NFL running concepts like Tree Cohen's the bounce out artist. They use him in a gimmicky role because he really doesn't want to go between the tackles. Like he doesn't, he shies away from that and won't stick his nose in it. JJ Taylor is kind of the opposite. He's more than willing to stick his nose in it. And he has a really good receiving. He's really natural receiver out of the backfield. And he is just a nightmare for linebackers. Like that when you're five foot five, your center of gravity is so low that your cutting ability and your ability to bounce in and out of cuts is you just can't have it when you're six foot tall like that, that guy, you just can't pin him down. And so unless you're, you know, top, uh, top of the charts athletically at the linebacker position, he's just going to be difficult for you to stay with one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the two highlights you have in the article of him just like lowering his shoulder into grown men is absurd. I think he, yeah, I don't. So with him, obviously you have Tariq Cohen, you're saying he's playing a gimmicky role in the NFL. What role does JJ Taylor play? Since he does show that willingness to run NFL concepts, are you comfortable running him as a, like a, a traditional back? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you can is the, is the biggest thing with him and why I'm high on him is that not only can he be a matchup weapon for you, can you do matchup weapony sort of things, but you can also, Hey, you know, they have a super light box count against us because they, we brought in JJ Taylor. Uh, let's just run inside zone. He'll be able to get the job done in that regard too. Yeah, that's, that's definitely has value. All right, let's move to the new segment here. Chug, sip or spit. I'm going to kick this Love thing it. off here. I'm going to kick this thing off. Chug, sip or spit multiple running backs. This is your prediction, not what you, what should happen, what you think yes. will happen. Multiple running backs go in the first 40 picks. Ooh. Let me look at the top of the second round again, just to, <laughs> just, re, just get a little, a little refresher here. Because I'll give I'm, my take. I'll give my take. I am okay. chugging that. I am chugging but, okay. that. I definitely think that's going to happen. Okay. I definitely think that's going to happen. It's going to be DeAndre Swift, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, maybe even Jonathan Taylor. I, you can see, I think you're going to have two running backs go in the first 40 picks. They shouldn't. I'm not saying they should, but I do think two running backs at least go in the first 40 picks. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to sip that. I'm going to sip your take here because I don't think once you get to the top of the second, I, th- I think maybe, maybe you see the Colts draft a running back there. I, I really don't think anyone takes one in the first round. I'm just going to say, I really don't think really? anyone takes one in the first round. I don't, I think this is the year where teams are like, we realize the value and what, like the difference between the guy we're drafting the first round, the guy we're drafting the second, the guy we're drafting the third, probably not going to be that big. So I'm going to say maybe the Colts, could maybe see, could maybe convince me that the Dolphins at 39 hop in on one. And I could see maybe like the Chargers after losing Melvin Gordon still wanting one, but I, that would be silly to me. And then obviously Bill O'Brien's probably going to draft one at 40. So <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to sip it. I don't, I don't 100% feel great about, but I, the NFL is just their valuation of running backs still kind of isn't close to where we would put it. I'd be very surprised if at least one running back didn't go in the first round because I just it just takes one yeah. team. All it does sure. is take one team. They're like, oh, man, DeAndre Swift, I'm all in. Or even Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dott, like, I, I could definitely see it happening. I'm still chugging that take. All right. Here's my take that I'm going to ask you to either chug, sip, or spit. I'm going to say that one of – I can't commit to which one yet, but one of Jordan Love and Justin Herbert falls out of the first rounds entirely. I just spit. think – I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me explain it a little bit more. Okay. Next. So if reports are true that the charges hate Justin Herbert, hate them, don't want Justin Herbert on their roster. They'd rather have Jordan Love or whatever. I don't know what they're going to do, but Dolphins have more draft capital to go up and get Tua. Like they'll go up and get, they will get Tua if they want Tua badly enough. So that means the Chargers hate Herbert 
they're probably just going to go somewhere else then in the first. They're probably not going to reach for Jordan Love at that point. That would be nuts to me. They're probably going to, I don't know, draft Isaiah Simmons, whatever, draft offensive line help at that point. And then who after that takes the quarterback? Jacksonville is not, in my opinion, not going to be in the quarterback market at nine. They are in the Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields market, but not in the quarterback market this year with the way that roster is built. The Broncos, they love Drew Locke. They're not going anywhere else. The Raiders, I don't think the Raiders at 12, at, at 12 or 19 would be in the market for a quarterback after signing Marcus Mariota. You got the Eagles, Vikings, Patriots, maybe, but like that, that one's just a maybe. The Saints, they're always all in every year. They're never playing for the future, so they're not going to go get a QB. Plus, they have Taysom Hill. The future is already on yeah, the roster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and then Vikings, Dolphins, Seahawks, Ravens, Titans, Packers, 49ers, and Chiefs are all set at QB. Now, someone could obviously trade back up, but I think with the new CBA, the way it is, the the fifth-year option is no longer nearly as enticing for teams to get at the quarterback position because of how much it does cost at the bottom end of the first round still. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say one of them falls out of the first round. I think I'm going to spit that take. I'm spitting that take. I I, I do think if if jo- either Justin Herbert or Jordan Love falls to 23, because I do think Joe Burrow and Tua Tungamailoa go in the first three or five picks. If jo- if Justin Herbert or Jordan Love falls to uh, 23, I think the Patriots take them. Absolutely. Yeah. And then with Jordan Love after that, I, I'm not 100% convinced that the Chargers don't take Jordan Love at, at, at six. If they miss out on the Tua Tungamailoa, if they miss out on the two. If they miss out on the Tua Tungamailoa sweepstakes, I, I'm not convinced that they just go in a different direction. I think they could easily go after Jordan Love at six. I, I know they don't like Herbert, and I don't think the Las Vegas Raiders with John Gruden there likes Herbert. I think they're more interested in maybe Jalen Hurts on day two if they are going to add a quarterback in this mm-hmm. class. But I think Justin Herbert to the Patriots at 23 and Jordan Love to the Chargers at six, or if they trade back into the first round if he falls that far, I, that's where I'm sitting. Because I, I do you- think – what would you say? Could you imagine? So you're you're a casual Chargers fan. You're you're like, man, we're sitting at six. We could get to a Tungvaluwa. Like I'm all in on that. He's the future. I love this guy. Alabama, whatever. Uh, incredible prospect. You, Dolphins trade up. You're like, oh shit. Okay, whatever. Who are we gonna get now? We're gonna get a quarterback. You draft Jordan Love, a guy from Utah State who averaged 7.2 yards per attempt last. You look at his stats and you're like, 7.2 yards per attempt. 20 touchdowns, 17 picks, 62.0 completion percentage. You're just like, that's who we got. You know, like a guy who not only didn't play at a big school, played played terrible statistical profile at a small school. Now I'm not like, I'm not damning him to anything, but like that is not riling up your fan base the way the chargers (laughs) kind of like need their fans to rally behind them in their move to the stadium in LA. I mean, that, that, that is a good point. I just can't imagine them going into the season with Terod Taylor. Like, that's, a rookie quarterback I mean, that's, still... Yeah, that's the thing, too. A yeah. rookie quarterback still do, drives buzz, regardless if he's a Utah State or an Alabama guy. Like, get, bringing in a young quarterback brings hope with it, regardless of what you project. But this is why I think Jalen Hurts might be... They might draft Jalen Hurts in the second round. Because he would come with a lot more of that fanfare. He'd be like, oh, Jalen Hurts, he won... True. true that's a good point he, you know he has stats that sort of thing so draft, maybe that's drafting for fanfare by the way is absolute garbage i mean that's <laughs> that's I'll, I'll spit that take every day of the week i will say though it matters to owners and if it matters to owners then it matters to you as a gm because you want to keep your job so. absolutely 
All right, last segment of the podcast here, top shelf versus the well. We're going to do a round one prospect, a first round prospect versus a day two, day three type of prospect. Who would you prefer uh, with the understanding of draft capital? Let's start with C.J. Henderson, Florida cornerback. That's like probably going to go inside the top 20, top 25 picks in the yep. draft. Noah Igbenogany will be going at, the, I think, top of day two, maybe mid-day two. But between those two players, yeah. where are you going? Give me C.J. Henderson in the first. I will take that guy in the first because Noah Benogany is just, he's too far away for, for my taste. Like he could be rough right out the gate in terms of his ball skills. I don't know. I like, I just think CJ Henderson's much, much closer at this point. I'll pay for that certainty. I'll pay the one more round of draft capital for that certainty or the, just for the having seen him done it already in the sec. So I'm, I'm, Give me C.J. Henderson, but it's it's close. I mean, Noah Igbenogany is a talented player in his own right. I think if Noah Igbenogany falls after like pick forty, I would go Igbenogany. Okay. I think he does have he does have similar like similar athleticism, similar skill set in terms of he can match and mirror with C.J. Henderson, even like Jeffrey Okuda. The ball skills are a huge concern, and I don't think he'll be a great player out of the gate. But I think Noah Igbenogany can be the player C.J. Henderson can be, and I think you're going to get him at a cheaper price point. However, I do also think Noah Igbenogany could sneak into the back end of the first round, and this this whole conversation is moot. Dude, yeah, he might like. Someone's going to fall in love. He's barely 20 years old. The guy's super exactly. young. It's just, it, like, like what he did. So you turn on the Alabama game and what he's able to do with Devontae Smith and some of the other receivers he, he covers in that game. It's like at 19, 20 years old, like, okay, that, that talent, you don't find that on, on day two. Normally, I mean, yeah. you don't find that on day three. I think Noah Benogany definitely has like an upward trajectory about him that I think teams will covet. Next one on the list here is DeAndre Swift, the Georgia running back who – you, I know you're not 100% convinced running back going in the first round, but I think he could. If there is a running back that goes in the first round, it'll be DeAndre Swift versus Clyde Edwards-Hilaire on day two. Give me Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I'm not even – I'm not 100% certain that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is not the better prospect. Like, that's how close they are in my mind. Uh, obviously, he's slower. Doesn't have quite the juice. But he's got a little shake, and he's got a little more – just make you miss, I think, than DeAndre Swift does in the broken tackle numbers this past season. And he was straight up better than DeAndre Swift. So give me Clyde Edwards Hilaire. This one's not even a debate in my mind. I think I don't know if this is against the rules, but I'm going not the top shelf or the well. I'm going deeper into the well, and I'm taking Zach <laughs> Moss. I, like Zach Moss didn't have good athletic testing. He's going to crash down. You're licking the floor. Exactly. I will. I, I'm, um, what is that? Zambonying the bar right now with yeah. Zach Moss. I think that's way better value because like, he's going to probably fall to like late day two, early day three. And like to get that kind of running back who can make people miss in space. I'm all about Zach Moss compared to spending a top 50, top 60 pick on Deandre Swift or uh, Clyde Edwards to Next you're one. Asking, on, you're asking the ahead. person next to you if they're done with that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you done with that drink? Oh, uh, this swig. is, this is water. Oh, anyway, uh, Jake Fromm versus Anthony Gordon. I like this one. This one's interesting. I will say I'm not exactly sure where the NFL falls on both these guys, but I do think Fromm goes somewhere in the second round, and I do think Gordon probably goes fourth round. So with that in mind, this one's tough because I do like Fromm better. Like I, I, and I usually say incremental difference at the quarterback position always lean. You know, it's always more valuable than the incremental capital in draft stock. I will say, though, I'd rather have Gordon in the fourth just because second, you're still passing on good players a lot of times. Like, there's, you're still finding good players in the second round. Fourth is when you're taking more flyers at that point. Then, then taking your shot means far less uh, that you're giving up opportunity cost-wise. So I'll get take Anthony Gordon 
in the fourth and bet on that course sort of uh, the, un- the unknown of him that we've only really seen one year and that yeah. there was some really high level there and that it could push even higher in the coming years. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot the question here, Jordan love or Anthony Gordon, Jordan love in round one or Anthony Gordon round four round. Oh, five. that one's, Oh, that one's come on. I really? Mean, I mean, Fromm's ahead of love on the board right now for us. Okay. So I wow. like, I, I like Fromm even better than Jordan love at this point. Wow. All right. Um, my take on that is I'm going Anthony Gordon. I mean, it, I'm talking to Eric about, you know, what love he said about Anthony, you guys. Love the, love the, love the Wazoo guys. But talking to Eric about like Anthony Gordon projection, the next level, I think he's, he sees Anthony Gordon. If he did this, the top shelf versus the well, he sees Anthony Gordon as better value than Justin Herbert in round one because of the, because of what Anthony Gordon put on tape. Uh, at Washington State, which is interesting. All right, last one on the top shelf versus the well. Jalen Rager, TCU wideout that I know you love dearly, versus Devin Duvernay, the Texas wide receiver. That I think similar skill set from an athleticism standpoint. I think both of them are great after the catch. I do think Devin Duvernay will have to play the slot at the next level, but Jalen Rager is going to be more of an outside slot kind of hybrid. But uh, give me your take there. Jalen Rager, round one. Devin Duvernay, round three, round four. This one's tough because, like, I love Rager. One of my biggest sort of uh, fa- I'm fan of huge fan of his game. What he brings to the table. And I think his dynamic ability to separate down the football field is right up there. Like is right behind is right up there with anyone else in this class, really. Like even compared to Henry Ruggs, like he separates almost as much down the football field, but Duvernay in the fourth, like he brings a lot of the same things to the table in terms of the speed, the explosiveness, I'll lean Rager though. I think at the end of the day, just give me the guy I feel much, much better about winning. And like, we've seen him do it already yeah. consistently on his tape. Get open. Now we haven't seen him necessarily finish as much. And Duvernay obviously statistically blew him out the water this year, but I will take Jalen Rager in this, assuming it's like back into the first versus back into the third sort of guy. I think this is Rager no contest for me. Like, I mean, watching Devin, watching Devin Duvernay at the uh, Senior Bowl, I I think trying to separate at the you know deeper and intermediate levels, he just didn't. Like, I mean, like especially against press, like he cannot create separation down the football field. And yes, he's good after the catch, and so is Jalen Rager. But like Jalen Rager is actually going to create separation deep down the football field, and I think also it depends on usage. Like if you're bringing in one of these guys to do an underneath type of role, catch a lot of passes from the slot off coverage, those things, David Duvernay is probably the better value. But if you want a receiver to come in, play outside wide receiver on over 50, 55% of his snaps and win down the football field, it's Jalen Rager every day of the week. So I think it also depends on usage, which is interesting. It's close though. That one's close for me. Okay, fine. Whatever, man. No, no, fine. All right, let's finish the podcast with this. Remember, we're going to send five draft guides to randomly selected podcast listeners that leave an email in a review for the podcast. Make sure you do that right now. But until next time, we're going to be back on Monday talking more 2020 NFL draft. This is Gail Mike Renner, 2 for 1 Drafts. 